Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. You know, lately on Go Green Radio, we've been doing a lot of shows about water, uh, namely drinking water and safe drinking water, something that we've taken for granted for many decades in America. But uh, increasingly, we are finding that our drinking water is contaminated with a variety of substances. And today we're going to talk about a contaminant that isn't well covered in mainstream media. We have a lot going on, of course, um, but we're going to be talking about higher levels of nitrate in our drinking water and uh, the fact that millions of Americans are being exposed to this nitrate. Our guest today is Anne Scheschinger, and she is with the Environmental Working Group. And many of you know that I like to have guests from the Environmental Working Group because they are scientists, they are analysts, and they give us data-driven um, reports and studies and investigations. And Anne has been doing an investigation into the nitrate situation. And so I am so glad to have you on the show to break this down for us. Anne, welcome to Go Green Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, I would like to start by having you explain to us the human health risks associated with nitrate contamination in our drinking water. Sure. So nitrate can be dangerous to your health when consumed in drinking water. Under the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, the legal limit for nitrate in drinking water is set at 10 milligrams per liter. But that limit was set based on 1960s science, really to guard against blue baby syndrome, which is a potentially fatal condition that starves infants of oxygen if they ingest too much nitrate in water. So blue baby syndrome is kind of the health risk that's talked about the most with regards to nitrate. But more recent studies have really shown strong evidence of increased risk of colon cancer for adults from prolonged exposure to nitrate at levels of 5 milligrams per liter or even lower, so much lower than that maximum contaminant limit. And then there have also been some recent studies showing that when women drink water with nitrate levels below the legal limit during pregnancy, their babies are more likely to be born with neural tube birth defects. So these are some serious health risks, and that's really why uh, us at the Environmental Working Group really are working on this issue. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that there are many different ways that nitrate can enter our drinking water. So walk us through the ways that this could end up in our tap water. So some main sources of nitrate in our tap water in cities are septic systems and wastewater treatment plants. So when a septic system leaks or when a wastewater treatment plant discharges into a water source, then that nitrate can get back into our drinking water. But in agricultural states, really the main sources of nitrate in our drinking water are fertilizer and animal manure. And those inputs are applied to farm fields that are often poorly protected. So over the winter, there's nothing covering the fields. It's just soil and a lot of times snow in some of these Midwest places. So when fertilizer or manure are applied to unprotected farm fields, and then a, a rain or snow event comes, it can wash off that manure fertilizer into water. Mm -hmm. And nitrate is a, a big component of uh, fertilizer manure. 
Got it. Now, you know, when I look at my local municipality's drinking water quality report, um, when I look at the nitrate section, it says that it's naturally occurring. Uh, What do I make of that? That is correct. So nitrate does naturally occur in soil, but the EPA and a lot of other state governments have found that Uh, Nitrate levels in drinking water at or above 3 milligrams per liter, so much lower than 10, shows that that nitrate is from a human-caused source. So really, we only see natural nitrate levels in water below 3 milligrams per liter. So those are really low levels that actually come from the environment and not from a human source. Got it. So if if our listeners out there are looking at your uh, water quality reports for your municipal water supply um, and you're looking at that same graph that I'm looking at or the same chart that I'm looking at and you're seeing that nitrate levels are over three, um, that means there's something else going on besides just a naturally occurring contaminant. Now, let's get back to the human caused, uh, you know, contamination levels. Why is it that farmers use nitrogen fertilizer in the first place, and how does it end up in the manure that they use as fertilizer? So farmers spread nitrogen fertilizer and animal manure on their fields just because nitrogen helps their crops grow. And nitrogen is just a natural part of animal manure. It's, it's in the manure, and then we also create fertilizer that has nitrogen to kind of help boost the yield of crops. Uh, But one thing that's not always talked about um, with this issue is specifically why manure is applied to fields. So it's Mm -hmm. not just applied to farm fields to help crops grow. In a lot of cases, we have these large animal feeding operations throughout the country, and manure from the animals really builds up in storage containers. So then a lot of times this manure is essentially applied to farm fields near these animal confinements to get rid of the manure. So it's not just applied to fields to help crops. It's also kind of considered a waste product in a lot of areas. So they need to get rid of the manure because the storage facilities often are overflowing when there's a lot of animals in confinement. Interesting. So, wow. Yeah, that's that's something that a lot of us probably have never seen happen and didn't even realize was an issue. That's that's really interesting. Now, this is the, the tough part of this. Once this nitrate is in our water supply, how do we remove it? What technologies exist to even remove this, you know, this contamination from our tap water? Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of water technologies that you can use to remove nitrate. So water systems can either use ion exchange or reverse osmosis technologies to get rid of that nitrate from drinking water. And ion exchange systems essentially contain a resin that removes nitrate as water passes through it. And then in reverse osmosis systems, pressurized water is pushed through a membrane that filters out nitrate and other contaminants. But both of these options can be extremely expensive, especially for the small rural water systems that struggle with nitrate contamination of drinking water the most. And sometimes to avoid the high cost of treatment, some water systems will actually try to dig a new or deeper well if they're on groundwater. But that's also costly, and it doesn't guarantee cleaner water. And then something I haven't really talked about yet is private wells. So a lot of people on private wells also struggle with nitrate in their drinking water. 
and the same reverse osmosis technology is available to them, but it can cost thousands of dollars. So it's really expensive for both public water systems and private wells to remove this nitrate from their drinking water. Well, here's kind of a follow-up. This is something that I always wonder when we're talking about reverse osmosis systems. So if they remove the nitrate or other contaminants, what do you do with all of the material that's been removed from the water in order to keep it from re-entering the, the water cycle? What is there a, a waste, you know, a mm-hmm. management solution to this? I mean, what do you do with that stuff, even if you can put in those systems? Yeah, that's a really good question because with reverse osmosis, when you put in, a, you know, um, quite a bit of water, you waste so much. So you're wasting almost three-fourths of water because that water flushes out the contaminants in these reverse osmosis filters. So then that wastewater has to go somewhere. And it's kind of interesting because this nitrate pollution from agriculture isn't considered a point source of pollution. So no one's really blamed for nitrate coming off farm fields because there's a lot of farmers instead of one specific place. But when a water treatment plant wants to get rid of this nitrate uh, wastewater coming out of reverse osmosis, then it's considered a point source. So a water treatment system would have to get a permit to deal with this nitrate wastewater, whereas the farmers who are putting tons of nitrate on their land and it's running into our water, they don't have to get any kind of permit to do anything. So a solution a lot of water treatment plants use is they will send that wastewater to a wastewater treatment plant and then a wastewater treatment plant will treat the water and try to, you know, clean it up so that they're not releasing a bunch of nitrate back into water streams. Mm-hmm. That's That sounds extremely expensive if we don't already have these technologies in place. Do we have these technologies, technologies in place where the nitrate levels are high? Most water systems don't have either of these technologies in place, and that's throughout the country. There's not a state that has the most uh, reverse osmosis or ion exchange facilities. So systems really only install these technologies if they have multiple nitrate tests at or above the legal limit of 10 milligrams per liter. So when systems reach that 10 level or above over time, then the EPA starts to require them to do some kind of mitigation to reduce those nitrate levels. But sometimes that can really take years Uh, for a system to go through that whole process. Like just an example in Pretty Prairie, Kansas, their Mm -hmm. drinking waters had nitrate levels above 10 for decades, even above 20, some really high levels. But they just started installing a nitrate removal system last year in 2019 after the EPA finally enforced this MCL of 10. So it can really take a long time for the EPA to make a a water treatment plant go through and actually do a, a... reverse osmosis or an ion exchange facility. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, I had one of your colleagues on talking about PFAS in water, and we talked about a reverse osmosis solution for that as well. Um, You know, do you, do you see any indication on the horizon that, you know, more municipalities or water agencies are, are planning to put these systems in place or, um, you know, what's your, What's your read on, you know, how quickly this may be happening or, or worse yet, not happening? 
I think we definitely see more systems adapting reverse osmosis. I mean, it's really expensive, but it does a great job removing contaminants. It removes something like 99% of contaminants from drinking water. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't just remove nitrate, but like you were saying, PFAS and a lot of other contaminants. So I think we will see more and more systems kind of going to reverse osmosis because it's kind of like a a one-size-fits-all for a number of different issues. So if you have, you know, an issue with nitrate and something else, you're more likely to do a reverse osmosis treatment system. But really, the, the systems that adopt these technologies are the largest systems. Because they're so expensive, it's really hard for small systems to adapt their reverse osmosis technology because they have way less people to spread the cost over. So you really only see kind of the largest systems putting in a reverse osmosis facility. And, and um, yeah, Des Moines, well, Iowa, oh, sorry. Yeah, go right ahead. Talk about Des Moines. I was just going to add that Des Moines, Iowa has had a long-term issue with nitrate in their drinking water for many, many years, and, and they actually have an ion exchange facility and a reverse osmosis. So at two different treatment plants, they have both just to remove nitrate. Wow. They And why did they put in both? That's really interesting. So they kind of have two streams where they... Oh. Um, they get their water from two different areas. And so in their Des Moines location and their Des Moines treatment plant, they have an ion exchange technology. But then a little bit further north of Des Moines, they have another uh, smaller plant where they treat water from a lake instead of a river. And so that lake water, they use a reverse osmosis technology to clean the water there. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is fascinating. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Anne about how widespread this problem is um, and how far this nitrate contamination situation reaches throughout the United States. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. In case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is from the Environmental Working Group. She's one of their senior economic analysts. And she. Um, we're talking about nitrate contamination in water. And I know that many of you who follow us every week um, have been listening to many of the shows that we've been doing about contamination in our nation's water supply. We're going to be talking about how widespread this problem is in the United States. And so, Anne, let's go into some detail where nitrate contamination is becoming a growing problem. Take some time and help us understand where in the U.S. this is happening. So nitrate contamination of drinking water is really happening across the country. And mostly it happens in states where agriculture is a big industry. So in our new analysis that we just released on June 24th, we found that 45.5 million Americans are served by just over 4,000 water systems that had elevated nitrate between 2003 and 2017. And those were specifically in 10 states. So we looked at California, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Maryland, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. And we consider any system to have elevated nitrate if they had at least one nitrate test at or above three milligrams per liter, because as we were talking about earlier, that's the indicator of human-caused nitrate in drinking water. So something else we found that out of those 4,000 water systems, over 2,100 systems serving almost 21 million people had nitrate contamination that grew steadily worse over that time frame. So these aren't just systems that had elevated nitrate levels, but they also had levels that were going up over those 15 years. And just something else interesting that we found is that across all 10 states, small rural systems are really impacted the most. So 80% of the water systems with increasing nitrate served 3,300 people or less. So really, really small systems that often can't deal with the problem as well as larger systems. And then also when you look at all of the states except for California, two-thirds of communities with growing nitrate levels were in a rural area rather than an urban area. So that's really why we see this as being a, a small rural issue the most, although there definitely are systems that are large and are in urban areas that are also battling nitrate. Mm-hmm. And, and how is California's nitrate contamination different from the other states? California is a, a really unique case out of the 10 states. And that's mainly because most of the systems with worsening nitrate in California are actually in urban areas and not rural areas. So we found that 71% of systems with increasing nitrate in that 15-year time frame in California were in an urban area. But California is really different in this way because there's so much farming in California in what's known as the urban agricultural interface which is just a a lot of cropland inside or nearby urban areas. So just an example is the city of Fresno is surrounded by almost 2 million acres of cropland in Fresno County. So Fresno has a lot of issues with nitrate. Even though that's a major city, it's still so close to agriculture that we see them having these same issues from agricultural runoff that small rural systems are also happening. And then... um, Even though a lot of these systems are are technically in urban areas, we still found that nitrate is getting worse in 57% of all community water systems in California that already had elevated nitrate levels. 
so quite a few systems. Wow. And, you know, I know that where I live in California, about 70% of our water is imported, mostly from the state water project. And so that's surface water. And we do have our own groundwater. But I'm wondering if nitrate contamination is just a problem for groundwater or is surface water impacted as well? This issue really impacts both groundwater and surface water. Across the 10 states that we looked at, 86% of the communities with elevated levels of nitrate relied on groundwater for their drinking water, but then there's still 14% of those communities were surface water. So it really does impact both sources of water, even though groundwater is kind of the main issue in these states. But a lot of times with really large systems, those are the ones that we see struggling with nitrate from their surface water sources. Wow. Now, you know, we talked about the fact that a lot of these communities that are suffering the most from nitrate contamination are small and rural. Talk to us in more detail about the ability of the communities that are affected most by this issue to pay for the technology to remove nitrate from their drinking water. Talk to us in more depth about that. Mm-hmm. So removing nitrate from drinking water through either ion exchange or reverse osmosis is really expensive. So we did an analysis uh, in 2018 of how much these could cost water systems, and we found that they could cost hundreds of dollars per person per year to build and operate. So the smaller systems really could be paying hundreds of dollars per person in just one year to try to afford one of these newer systems. And these larger systems are really able to afford the treatment technologies better because they can spread the cost across a lot of water rate payers. So when you have, you know, 100,000 people, which is the size of a very large water system, then if you need to do a $2 million reverse osmosis treatment technology, you know, it's much cheaper to spread $2 million over 100,000 people than it is Mm -hmm. to spend maybe $500,000 for a smaller system for reverse osmosis over 1,000 people. So let me ask you this. When you talk about this price per person for this technology, is that just for the capital outlay to build the treatment plants? Is that operations? I mean, how long does does a price tag like that go on? Because, you know, I'm wondering, you know, let's say if all of a sudden money fell out of the sky and we were able to, you know, help these communities build the treatment plants, you know, how would that change the economics uh, of the numbers that you just gave us? I mean, is this a build Mm -hmm. and operate expense or, you know, is this mostly for the operation of the plants? So in our 2018 analysis of these costs, we looked at uh, per-person costs um, that were annualized. So Mm -hmm. essentially what an annualized cost is is for a building project like a a reverse osmosis facility, the the capital cost to build that and then the cost to operate it every year is kind of spread out by year over the lifetime of the reverse osmosis system. So when we talk about hundreds of dollars per year per person, we're specifically talking about like an annualized capital cost, but then also mm-hmm. operations cost. But you know, the capital cost really is the largest cost for um, 
ion exchange or reverse osmosis. So designing and building is really the, the most expensive part of these technologies. So it would be great if these smaller communities could get some help um, on the capital cost and then just rely on their water rate payers to pay for operation costs every year. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of the things that I keep thinking is that, um, you know, in as much as in the waste industry, a lot of groups are looking at things like extended producer responsibility. So, you know, instead of just letting uh, garbage rate payers and municipalities bear the brunt of all the costs to deal with the waste products of certain industries, there's a mechanism for having the producers of these you know, items that would end up in the waste stream bear the some of the cost of, you know, removing them from the waste stream or finding, you know, a way to reuse or recycle them. Is there any such mechanism in the the water world? Um, any similar um, cost structure that you know has the producers of the contaminant involved in the cost of removing the contaminant for public health purposes? There's not really any example I can give where, you know, farmers who contribute the nitrate to drinking water help to pay for treatment, uh, you know, to remove the nitrate from drinking water later on down the chain. Really, Mm -hmm. we rely on, you know, um, voluntary conservation programs that try to prevent some of this nitrate pollution from getting into drinking water in the first place. But mm-hmm. I think it's a, a great idea to try to think about having farmers uh, bear some of the burden uh, to pay for removing this nitrate from drinking water because we we know where it's coming from. It's coming from farm fields in these agricultural states. So it would be really great to have them pay for some of those expensive technologies if that's what we want to focus on instead of focusing more on prevention in the first place. Mm-hmm. And maybe we could back it up one more step and maybe the producers of the fertilizers themselves could help out as well um, because they're the ones also making money on the sale of those fertilizers. Just a thought. But, you know, a model like that exists in other, you know, in, in other uh, waste streams, so to speak. And so maybe this could be applied to this as well. So just because I want to underscore this, and I know you've mentioned some numbers about how many people in different areas are impacted by this. Give us a sense of how many people, how many communities in the U.S. are impacted by nitrate contamination. So in our analysis, we found over 4,000 communities with 45.5 million people that had nitrate at or above 3 milligrams per liter. So... That was just in the 10 states, so we know that there are are potentially millions more of uh, Americans in other states that are also dealing with nitrate contamination. I know that we did an analysis a few months ago of nitrate in Minnesota's drinking water, and we found that quite a few uh, Minnesotans are also struggling with nitrate. So this problem is not just localized to these 10 states. We just focus on them because they are really ag-heavy states, and we had found in a previous analysis uh, last year that these 10 states were kind of some of the, the focal areas of nitrate and drinking water. But we know mm-hmm. that it's it's more than 45.5 million people that are, are struggling with elevated levels of nitrate. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to mention too, for all of our listeners, if you get out on ewg.org, Environmental Working Group's um, website, they've also created a really cool map that helps us to visualize the nitrate contamination issue. So I highly recommend getting out on ewg.org and checking out that map. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Anne about the regulatory landscape around this issue of nitrate contamination. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We're talking about something really important. Um, I know that we all like to take our drinking water for granted, but we're talking about nitrate contamination. And for those of you who are as geeky as I am, who actually read the annual water quality report uh, from your drinking water purveyor, whether that's your city or whether it's some other water agency, you may look at the chart of all the various contamination levels in your water supply and you may find that they list nitrate as within legal limits and that it's not above that. But we're going to talk a little bit about what those legal limits mean. And of course, if you've already been with us for the beginning of the show, you know that our guest today is from the Environmental Working Group. I respect that organization very much. They're very thorough in their data analysis. And so, Anne, I want to talk about the regulatory landscape around nitrate. Talk to us first about when the current maximum contamination level, or MCL, for nitrate was set by the EPA. The current MCL of 10 milligrams per liter for nitrate was set by the EPA based on uh, health studies conducted in the 1960s. So since newer studies have shown increased risk of colon cancer and birth defects, we really think the EPA should reevaluate if 10 is still the correct level for protecting public health. And the EPA actually reviews drinking water standards every six years as part of their six-year review process. 
And a few years ago, they began reviewing the nitrate MCL and actually did a study that kind of gathered together all recent nitrate health studies about drinking water. But then last year, the EPA said in the spring that nitrate was just no longer a priority for them, and they completely stopped reviewing the MCL. So we really think the EPA should kind of go back to the review that they already started and evaluate if the MCL of 10 is really protecting public health. Well, and and when we talk about, you know, it's not a priority for them, um, let's review for a moment what these studies they were looking at reveal about the human health impacts. I mean, originally these nitrate levels were set because of blue baby syndrome, but in segment one, you mentioned some other health impacts and and remind us again of why this is actually a, a pretty big issue when it comes to public health. Yeah, so nitrate can increase the risk of colon cancer in adults if you have prolonged exposure to nitrate in drinking water at levels even lower than 10 and even some levels lower than 5. And then we've also seen some early evidence about maybe thyroid issues associated with nitrate in drinking water. And then we're also seeing new studies about uh, birth defects in babies whose moms drank nitrate uh, in their drinking water at levels lower than 10 during their pregnancy. So it kind of has potential health risks for everyone from a baby up to an adult. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we all kind of hope that our government is regulating and protecting us uh, from these types of pollutions. But, you know, when we look at the Clean Water Act um, and we talk about the the way that nitrate enters into our our drinking water, and we were talking about the agricultural impact, you know, and how nitrate and nitrogen fertilizer, you know, becomes part of the the runoff from ag fields. Is agriculture covered under the Clean Water Act? The Clean Water Act barely applies to agriculture. So the ag regulates the largest animal feeding operations, so that these operations aren't really allowed to just dump tons of animal manure into nearby bodies of water. But the Act doesn't regulate smaller animal feeding operations, which can also contribute to serious water pollution issues. And the Clean Water Act doesn't apply to crop farmers practically at all. So farmers are allowed to put fertilizers and pesticides on their farm fields basically at their discretion without having to worry about violating the Clean Water Act. And the main reason why... This really happens is because the Clean Water Act really focuses on point sources of water pollution. So they specifically regulate individual polluters that can be identified, like a a factory or a wastewater treatment plant, where you know this is the exact location where this pollutant is coming from. But since farms are really considered to be non-point sources, where there are a lot of farms across the landscape that together contribute this nitrate pollution to water, they really aren't regulated under the Clean Water Act. Wow, that's alarming. Um, <laughs> you know, and again, if we're not constantly vigilant, I think a lot of citizens just have no idea that this can be allowed to happen and be perfectly legal. Talk to us about private wells, because a lot of people get their water from private wells. Are they covered by the, the legal limits, the MCLs set for nitrate? Private wells are not regulated at all by the EPA or anyone. So people on a private well really don't have to adhere to any drinking water MCLs. 
And although our recent report doesn't really address private wells, we've done quite a bit of research on this issue in other areas of the U.S. And we found that nitrate in private well water really is a serious issue across the country. So overall, 43 million people in the United States get their drinking water from a private well. And since these private wells aren't regulated, most of the people on wells don't even know what contaminants are in their drinking water. So it's potentially a serious issue for 43 million people. And in most states, well owners aren't even required to test their private well. So I would definitely say to your listeners, if you live in one of these 10 states that our nitrate report is about and you're on a private well for drinking water, definitely get your well tested to make sure you don't potentially have a a dangerous level of nitrate or something else in private well water. It's really, really important to get well water tested. Wow. 43 million Americans. That's a huge number potentially, you know, dealing with this. That's that's pretty remarkable. You know, earlier in the show, and you talked to us about the voluntary programs to encourage farmers to reduce nitrogen fertilizer use. Talk to us about some of those voluntary programs and and, and kind of give us an idea of whether or not they've been successful. In most states, In the U.S., voluntary conservation programs are really the only tool that people use to try to reduce nitrogen from running off farm fields and getting into drinking water. So essentially, voluntary programs um, pay farmers from taxpayer-funded state and federal programs to put conservation practices on their farm fields. So some of these examples of conservation practices are cover crops, where crops are planted on fields over the winter to hold soil in place when there's traditionally not a crop on the field, or a stream buffer, which is kind of a a vegetative area between a field and a stream, and those buffers really capture a lot of nitrogen and other pollutants so that they don't run off the farm into streams. And then also land retirement is is a really, really good one, obviously, for Uh, reducing nitrate in water bodies. So retiring cropland around wellheads, we've found to really be a a great source of removing nitrate when you turn that farmland into, you know, a a forest or a a prairie, you're going to get way less nitrate into the wells. Um, But since these practices that are are essentially paid for by taxpayers um, are voluntary, Farmers who voluntarily put them in can also voluntarily remove them. So we see that in so many places, especially here in the Midwest, you know, voluntary conservation practices really don't stay on the landscape for very long after the money stops. So these voluntary programs really haven't done a whole lot to reduce nitrate contamination in drinking water. Mm. So what is the alternative to voluntary programs? Um, What could we do differently? Instead of relying on these voluntary conservation programs, farmers should really be required to implement basic conservation practices that can reduce nitrogen in runoff. So these mandated practices really should be targeted to the farms and fields that pollute the most. And we really think that these standard practices should be tailored to different landscapes because obviously no practices fit everywhere. You know, what what works in California isn't going to work in Iowa. But we think that those Practices can vary by state, but that they really, you know, farmers need to be required to do something, some basic conservation practices, particularly on farm fields that we know pollute the most. 
So these mandatory farm practices can be supplemented with voluntary programs, but voluntary really isn't enough to fix this problem. And we really think that these mandated conservation practices would go a long way in reducing nitrate that runs off into drinking water sources. And preventing this nitrate from getting into drinking water in the first place is really more efficient and cheaper than treating the water for nitrate later on at the drinking water treatment plant. Mm-hmm. And, and because your background is in economics, talk to us about the costs of those alternatives compared with the cost to remove nitrate from drinking water. Give us a little bit more detail there. So it's it's a little tricky because when you look at the voluntary programs that we've done, you know, taxpayers have spent billions of dollars over the last few decades on um, putting conservation practices onto farm fields that then get taken away a year or two or less later. So if you just look at what's already been spent and compare that to treatment costs, it doesn't really show the whole picture. So we know that when farmers just have to put a cover crop in on their fields um, over the winter in Iowa or Minnesota, you know, that's a really common, should be a common practice. It can be um, not very expensive. All you have to pay for is the cover crop seed and then a mechanism to plant it. So a lot of these are actually planes fly over these farm fields and drop the seeds into the fields. So that's significantly cheaper than having a water system downstream have to spend millions of dollars to build a, a nitrate removal technology, and then thousands of dollars each year to pay for the operating costs. You know, what's your sense, Anne, of the systems thinking (laughs) that's going on in these communities? I mean, is there anybody saying to taxpayers, look, guys, here's what it's going to take in Toto to have food, clean water, uh, you know, this is the all-in cost. And you know, and looking at shifting from a, uh, you know, a, a cleanup model to a prevention model, it's everybody, everybody has to share in the, the cost of this. I mean, we are already, whether it's in higher food prices or if it's in, you know, regulatory enforcement, what's your sense of, are there any models where this cost-benefit analysis is being done to show taxpayers, you know, the, their alternatives and, and give them a voice in how the systems work around their homes? There are not really any models that kind of look at everything systematically and, and balance the, the benefits and the costs. And I, I really think, you know, that's kind of where a regulatory framework would would be able to provide some benefit because, you know, if farmers were included in the Clean Water Act, then it'd be a lot easier to calculate, you know, how much would it cost for farmers to employ these, you know, mandated conservation practices. And then we could compare that to drinking water treatment costs. And if there mm-hmm. was a, by chance, you know, it was it's cheaper for treatment, then that's what we could go with. But we know anecdotally that's definitely not the case. So it would be really nice to have a regulatory mechanism to kind of set that up and do some cost-benefit analyses so we could really see, you know, what would be better for communities. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and we know that right now everything is pretty siloed. You've got the Farm Bill over here. You've got the Clean Water Act over there. And, you know, those are the kinds of, you know, agencies we'd have to meld in order to get that kind of systems thinking. Uh, Maybe one of these days. Let's keep talking about it. Maybe it'll happen. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have much more to talk about with Anne from the Environmental Working Group. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're talking about a really important issue, our drinking water and its safety. We're talking about nitrate contamination. I know that many of you have heard us talk about other forms of contamination in our drinking water. Um, It's not something we can take for granted, guys. We've got to really get involved in this and hold our regulatory um, agencies at the local, state, and federal level accountable for what's going into our drinking water. And just as a quick aside. Let's all remember what we've talked about many times before. Bottled water won't save you. A lot of times our bottled water is less regulated than our municipal water supplies. And in fact, in many cases, the water that's in the bottled water comes from our municipal water supplies. So, um, you know, for everybody who's cavalierly thinking, well, I'll just buy some bottled water. Nope. That's not going to save you either. So we need to clean up our water supply. So once again, our guest today is Anne from uh, the Environmental Working Group. She's one of their senior economic analysts, and she's talking to us about a study that's just been published this week about the growing problem of nitrate contamination across the U.S. So Anne, I want to ask you, what is your sense of the level of awareness that Americans have about this nitrate contamination issue? I would say that generally most Americans are not fully aware of this issue. Nitrate contamination is often a rural issue, and a lot of times, you know, rural issues kind of get lost on on those of us who live in urban areas. But there definitely is awareness in some local areas that really struggle the most with nitrate. 
So I talked a little bit earlier about Des Moines um, in Iowa. So a few years ago in Des Moines, the water utility actually sued water districts in counties in northwest Iowa because the farmers in those counties contributed a lot of nitrate to Des Moines drinking water. And they had to pay millions of dollars a year to remove nitrate from their drinking water. So they actually tried to sue those uh, water districts in those counties to try to get farmers to reduce the amount of nitrate that was running off their farm fields. So the Des Moines community really rallied around that issue. And then in a lot of communities in the Central Valley of California, nitrate levels are staggeringly high in both private wells and in groundwater, public water systems. And a lot of times in these communities, the nitrate are mostly affecting Latino farm worker communities. So there have been a lot of people in those areas also kind of rallying around this issue to try to get more exposure to the problem. And what's your sense of their success? Because, you know, I I live in California and I live, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area, which is a bit removed from the Central Valley, but I haven't heard about any of these movements. So what is happening in that area and and how could people in other parts of California contribute and be helpful to these campaigns? I think, you know, there's there's some awareness. Obviously, the most awareness is in the Central Valley, like it's focused on the people who live there and have to experience this problem. But for people who don't live there, there are some uh, um nonprofit organizations in California that are really on the ground trying to help people with uh, nitrate contamination of their drinking water. So one of those nonprofits is the uh, Community Water Center Mm -hmm. in California. So you could talk to those people who are actually on the ground helping people on private wells or on these uh, small community water systems and, and see if you could do anything for these nonprofit orgs that are really working on the issue. That's great info. Thanks for that, Anne. You know, I'm, I'm imagining that many of our listeners are wondering, hmm, what's going on with nitrate in my drinking water? How can we find out? If people want to know if they have increasing nitrate levels in their drinking water, they can look at that map that you mentioned earlier that EWG just released on our website on June 24th. So just go to ewg.org and it should be um, easy to find. But if Mm -hmm. anyone's really curious about um, other contaminants in their drinking water or nitrate, um, they can visit our tap water database. So our tap water database has contamination data for every community water system in the country, and it includes all contaminants, not just nitrate. So if um, a community water system tested for a contaminant and found it in the last five years, that info will be on our tap water database, and listeners can use their uh, zip code to find, you know, what water utility, water utility do they belong to, and then what kind of contaminants are um, in their water. And mm-hmm. the link to our tap water database is uh, ewg.org forward slash tap water. Perfect. And, and again, to my listeners, this is why I love the Environmental Working Group so much because, um, you know, they're not just giving us their opinions, their their insights, their thoughts. It's not a political campaign. This is data driven and you can find your own data on their website. Um, I love the way that you guys collate information and make it user friendly. So thank you for doing that, Anne. And please send our thanks to the rest of your colleagues. You know, 
sometimes people get confused about where to direct their advocacy when they want to get involved in an issue like this. Um, you know, they might go to their city council for a federal issue or vice versa. Talk to us a little bit about the most effective ways to advocate for keeping nitrate out of our drinking water. What do we do? When it comes to advocacy, I'm personally a big fan of starting local and then working your way up. So a good place to start might be just contacting your local water system and asking about what contaminants they have found in your drinking water. Or if you go on EWG's tap water database and you see a contaminant that you don't know about or you're kind of uncomfortable with in your drinking water, reaching out to these water systems is really a great first step. And these people are oftentimes like really great people. They love to talk to their constituents or people who they provide water to. I know I call mine every so often. I think they kind of get annoyed with me, but they're always very nice. And they tell you, they'll tell you everything that's in your water. And so kind of from that local level, I think it's good to work your way up to your city officials because a lot of times, you know, cities might not know um, uh, about nitrate or about a specific contaminant that worries you in the drinking water. So it's important to kind of go to the city officials next. And then when you really want to advocate for policy changes, like requiring farmers uh, near your water system's wells, for example, to uh, adopt conservation practices, then really advocating with the state and federal officials can have a big impact on that policy level work. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I just recently, I have a group of interns working with me this summer and, and they're high school and college students. And, and actually they're working on water conservation issues. And we went through the kind of the chain of command from, you know, from the federal level down to the local level, which water agencies and which offices of the federal EPA and the state EPA are involved in our water sources so that they could see you know, the responsibilities of the various levels of government. And and it was really eye-opening for them to see, you know, just how many different agencies are involved in our drinking water. But now they know who to talk to when they have, you know, things that they want to share uh, and, and advocate for when it comes to our drinking water. And I think, you know, that's something that it doesn't hurt <laughs> to be that informed, everybody. I'd like for our listeners to to check that out. You know, under the US EPA, there is an Office of Water. And under the Office of Water, there are several different offices under that. And one of them is for groundwater and drinking water. So checking that kind of stuff out, learning who in your state is responsible for your water and for your drinking water is not that hard. It's part of the executive branch of government in most states um, because they are you know, supposed to be the ones enforcing any policies or legislation that's passed by your state legislature. So that information is possible to find on on websites. So, Anne, I, I want to ask you this question because a lot of our listeners are young adults who are considering jobs either in the water industry or in sustainability what advice do you have for them? Because you have a pretty cool job and they may be wondering how they could follow in your footsteps. I'd, I'd really say that, you know, my advice for young people that are interested in a, a career in the water sustainable industries is, is really to stick with it. You know, I know that, I'll, you know, a lot of young people could become discouraged when they hear about issues like this one where nitrate and drinking water can be dangerous to public health and that the issue has been going on for years. But continuing to pursue a career in this area and focusing on educating others about pollution's impact on the environment and public health is really important work. 
So I'm, I'm not too many years past being a young professional, and I'm, I'm still really glad that I have stuck with this work since it really feels to me like I'm able to make a difference in, in people's lives or at least in their health. Well, you are. And being on our show is part of that by raising awareness. And we will continue to support you and support the Environmental Working Group in the important work that you do to bring these issues to the forefront, um, to provide an easy place for people to find out about these issues on your website, ewg.org. So I want to thank you, Anne, so much for joining us. I want to thank our listeners, too, for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.